So a piece of family business before we go any further, for those of you who are really clever, I hate to burst your bubble, but if you come up to me afterward and say, see you next year, I'm just going to diffuse that right away. You're not original. It won't be the first time I've heard it this year. Just, I'm, just, I'm just saying, see you next year. It's always the guy with the finger guns who's like, see you next year. Yeah. So in case you guys weren't awake, I want to make sure you're actually awake. So today we're going to ask a question. What are the motivations behind what we do? Because many times the actions on the surface may be different than the true heart intention. And we're going to look at two of those in particular this morning. The actions of Mary and the actions of Judas. And we're also going to look at the response of Christ and the responses of the chief priests. But in particular, those two actions, that of Mary and that of Judas in this story. Because on the surface, one of them seems wasteful, and the other one seems thoughtful. But if you dig underneath and what the true intentions are, they'll become apparent. And ultimately, I will make the argument that you are either seeking your glory or the glory of Christ. Because every action is towards someone's glory. Every action is so that someone will be recognized or someone will come out better on the end of this. And we need to ask ourselves, Are we seeking our glory or are we seeking Christ's glory? So I'm going to jump right into our text this morning because we got a lot to cover. So in John chapter 12, starting in verse one, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, our maker, our creator. You took on flesh and dwelt among us. And it was only so that we could reject you, spit on you and crucify you but so that through faith in you, we might rise to life like Lazarus. Lord, I pray as we read this text that as all scripture is God-breathed, that your spirit would examine us and convict us where it is appropriate and encourage us where we need it. That we would see our devotion to you and your glory as our highest aim and bring to light any areas within us where we are seeking greedy and selfish gain. 
And let us echo those words that we sung earlier. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ, our King. And it is in his name we pray. So before we get into our text this morning, we're going to do a bit of an exercise here. So we're going to bring you into maybe a a version of our Bible study. For those of you who attend our Bible study, and I encourage you to, whenever we look at passages uh, that have parallels, we'll always compare those parallels. Because many times and often the writers, especially the Gospels, have an intention in the way that they write. There are details they use on purpose. And so their details fit the purpose of each book. And so this account is actually included in Matthew and in Mark. And so we're going to read both of those accounts. And by the additional details we get from Matthew and Mark, we can begin to see the whole picture. And that's the beauty of the Gospels, is that you get four perspectives that are written by people with their personalities inflected in, but they also have specific purposes. John is more evangelistic. Matthew is more concerned with the Jews knowing that Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfiller of the Old Testament. And Mark is concerned with getting to the point. What is most important? What you must know. And so we're going to bring those together this morning. And this is going to be a helpful skill because if ever we run into passages in Scripture where we may be confused or we just want to know more about, the first thing we do after reading the passage is to consult the other passages that either address that issue, that theme, or this story in particular. So the first one uh, is going to be in Matthew chapter 26. So I'm going to give you a little heads up. You may want to keep your your finger in Matthew and your finger in Mark, because I'm going to be going back there if you want to reference them, or if you want to take a little piece of the bulletin, rip it off and tuck it in the Bible. Uh, That may be the most some of you have ever used the bulletin, but you can also write on that and take notes. I see all the empty bulletins on the end of Sunday. (laughs) All right, so we're in Matthew chapter 26. We're going to start in verse 6. Now remember the details of John. We're going to read Matthew and Mark, and then we're going to look at some comparisons. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, already we've got an additional detail. We know that Jesus is in Bethany from John, but now we know the house. And Simon the leper... Uh, so first thing, Simon may be known as Simon the leper, but if he currently has leprosy, no one is eating with him. I guarantee you. So this is probably most likely Simon who was previously a leper, but he will always be known as Simon the leper, just like Lazarus will probably always be, always be known as Lazarus, the dead guy. So now Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask. Say that five times fast. A very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. We see a couple more additional details here. Alabaster, flask, and his head. We'll get to that a little bit later. And when the, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Saying, why this waste? Also words we don't see here. Uh, and mention of the disciples. We'll also get to that. A lot of these details are helpful to kind of help us paint a picture here. For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for my burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now we're in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 3. 
through verse 9. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, Mark agrees with, with Matthew here, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now you kind of get the idea. There are additional details in each one of these, and I'm going to draw on, on some of those, and it will give us a complete picture of what's really going on here. Now, I don't get into uh, debates about critical scholars very often, but this will be another homework assignment for you. If you enjoy this kind of stuff, you can look also at uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Uh, where a sinful woman comes and anoints Jesus' feet as well. But you will see that if you compare these, we're, we're talking about completely different accounts. So many people will try to say the Bible disagrees with itself because in Luke 7, it says these details, and in Matthew, Mark, and John, it says these details. But if you read it, if you read them clearly side by side, you will see that there are very different details. And I won't get into it this morning, but again, uh, Luke 6, 36 through 50, if you like this kind of stuff, it's a, it's a good exercise. So now we're going to pick up back in John and uh, see where John takes us. So he says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. One of the other things that the, the critical scholars say is that, well, Matthew and Mark said it's two days before the Passover. There's a contradiction. Easily solved. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Hung out with his friends for four days and they, they, they planned a dinner for him. Two days before the, the, the Passover, there is a dinner. And um, Matthew and Mark tell us both that it was two days before the Passover when the dinner happened, not when he arrived. Easy enough. Uh, those, those kind of things are helpful when, you're, when you understand Scripture and you're able to kind of compare these things. But the word that we always pay attention to, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Therefore refers to something that came before. What was it? If we look directly before, there's nothing that directly involves Jesus. This is going on. There's an argument going on with the Jews and the Pharisees. Is he going to show up? You go back a little bit further. Jesus is in the wilderness. I would say we have to go all the way back to 51 and 52 to see what the therefore refers to. Look at verse 51 of chapter 11. He being Caiaphas Remember last week, Caiaphas gave this prophecy about one man must die for the sake of the nation so that the whole nation would not die. 51 says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Therefore, because of Caiaphas' prophecy that Jesus must die for the nation, he could have remained in the wilderness if he was a coward, if he was not going to accept the cup that the father gave him. Therefore, he came because his hour is now here. And so he came into Jerusalem. And when he gets there, he meets his beloved friends. We see him coming back to, to Bethany 
in several different instances. This is kind of Jesus' home away from home. He's, he's a Galilean there in Judea, but he's, he has friends there. He loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And he can, it seems like he can be at peace there. He can recline with his friends. Simon, probably someone, he healed from leprosy. Lazarus, who he rose from the grave, and they're reclining at a table. And they gave a dinner for him there. Uh, now, let me paint the picture of what a dinner would, would look like. I have a couple of pictures up on the screen. So their dinners are a little bit different than ours. We're used to sitting at, at tables. That didn't really happen often. In that culture, they would recline, and you would have a, a U-shaped set of beds, essentially, and they would recline on their left elbow so they could eat with their right because the left was not sanitary. That's what they used for cleanliness and all that. They would only eat with their, their right, and they would all lean in. So you can see that their heads are facing inward, and it's that U-shape because a servant would be able to come into the middle and add food, take away food, and they would be able to serve them directly without disrupting the meal. And so this, now you see all of their feet would have been facing outward. There's one more picture that's, that's kind of cool. Uh, this is taken from a Roman catacomb. This is, we're not sure about when this is, but very early in the church. This is a Christian tomb uh, that was discovered in Rome where it shows one of these these early meals with the disciples. Someone's probably teaching and they're eating, they're gathering together. This could have been a Lord's Supper. To them, the Lord's Supper was really a meal where they would gather and they would remind each other of the body and blood of Christ. And uh, they would still eat in this particular style. So this is probably within the first couple of centuries of the church. And so this is the picture of what's going on. This supper, they are reclining. The other important detail is that in that culture, men and women did not mix in mixed company. Like families would have eaten together. But if there was a gathered meal, the men and the women and the children would have eaten separately because there would not be any sense of any impropriety with men laying next to women and and things like that. So these men would have been gathered and we get the detail of Martha serving. So there's a dinner there and Martha served. Martha has always served. That is who she is. And it is right that when Jesus comes back, this is not her house, but yet she takes the form of a servant. And my Lord is here. Now she is serving. We saw her declaration before. She knows who Jesus is. He is the Christ, the Son of God. And now she is serving the Lord. So they gave a dinner and Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. Don't miss this. We may just read over this. Think about this. The dead guy who just a month ago was in the grave for four days. Lazarus is just hanging out eating. There's a guy who used to have leprosy. He's a guy who used to be dead. You imagine what Jesus' dinner parties are like? You know, it's like he's restored what was lost. And here they are reclining with him. This is the beauty of the gospel. Because Jesus pulls you out of the grave and brings you to his table. And he feasts with you. And you enjoy the presence of the Savior. You imagine the stories that are going around on that table. Simon's like, man, you should have seen me before Jesus got a hold of me. I had leprosy. I was missing fingers. My hair was falling out. Lazarus was like, yeah, I, I, I got you topped. I was dead. I had nothing. And this beautiful picture of what Christ does when he gets a hold of people. 
And this ragtag group of disciples who are all sitting around this bed. So, so Matthew and, and Mark help us understand that this was a big gathering because the disciples were there too, but they aren't mentioned in John because John has a particular purpose and we'll get there in just a moment. So now we get to Mary. Mary, therefore, again, the therefore is important. What is Mary's motivation? Her brother's alive and Jesus has come back. And so this is a special time. And so Mary's going to show her devotion to the Lord. She's going to show her her generosity to the Lord. And what we're about to see is one of the most humble acts that we see in all of of Scripture. And this is a huge gesture. So we're going to take some time breaking this down. So we're going to go through these details and we'll walk back through them one at a time. Mary, therefore... Jesus, Lazarus, gathering, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Let me try to take you there if I can, because this there's a lot of symbolism here. First, we talk about anointing. Anointing is an Old Testament symbol, and this is still kind of an old covenant right here. Anointing was done for leaders of Israel. It was to say that you are holy, you are set aside for a purpose. And it was only messengers of God who would anoint someone. So it's on behalf of God anointing them for a specific purpose. And so there is high significance here for her to anoint Jesus. And then she anoints him with a pound of Roman ointment. Let's think about this for a moment. We all know those guys who take the cologne showers with like 10 sprays, how much that just offends your nose, right? Imagine a pound of perfume. Now, a Roman pound is only 12 ounces, but still, that's a lot. We get from Mark that this is a new flask. This is fresh. This is expensive. We'll get to the the cost in just a moment. And she broke it. There was going to be none left over. This is a very expensive gift and she breaks it because all of it will be used and so she breaks this expensive ointment and so when when you see the word ointment here they didn't have perfume like we did it was mostly oil based and so don't think this is neosporin or something uh this is this it's more like perfume it is a scented oil and this this nard was from way up in the himalayas so this was really expensive because it could only get there by by like mule back and it had to be uh, taken down from from the Himalayas of, of India, and it took a, it was a lot of money to, to harvest it and to ship it. It's this, this herb that would have been known because it was so rare and so strong and so costly. So picture the most expensive scent that she would have broken here. And then she pours it on his feet. Now Matthew and Mark say head. And then again, well, here's a controversy. Here's a, here's a contradiction. They say head, John says feet. There was plenty to go around. There's a pound of this stuff. Just because Matthew and Mark say head and John says feet, they don't say that it didn't touch his head and it didn't touch his feet. But they each have individual purposes. Anointing the head is is a blessing and and it is covering. But anointing the feet shows power. It shows rule. Because whoever is under your your feet is under submission to you. But it also, your, your feet is what connects you to the, to the fallen earth. The curse of, of sin has touched the very dirt. Remember when Moses goes before the, the burning bush, he takes off his sandals because the, the sin no longer affects his feet. So this is an anointing of his feet, where he walks, what he does. 
But I think John uses this theologically because if you flip over to chapter 13, verse 9, look what he says to Peter. When he's washing all of the disciples' feet and Peter realizes what he's doing, not only my feet, Lord, but my hands and my head as well. What does Jesus tell him? The one who is bathed need not wash except for his feet, but it is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. So John is setting up the teaching of Jesus that by anointing the, the feet, it is symbolic of the entire being. And so she is, is preparing him. And then she takes it a step further. She wipes his feet with her hair. Now, Sir Lady is getting grossed out by that already. But now you've got to take yourself to first century Palestine, where your hair was not uncovered in public. You would only uncover your hair for your husband. It was always bound up. It would always have been covered. So for a woman to let out her hair in public is scandalous. It's like a a woman wearing something she shouldn't, doing something she shouldn't. And to let her hair down would have made everyone stare. It would have been public shame. But I love the beauty of this. Because Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 11, that a woman's hair is her glory. She lets down her glory for the glory of the Lord, and she doesn't care what anybody thinks. And this is such an amazing act. Because all of the culture would have looked at her like, how dare you do something so shameful? She said, this is my Lord, how can I not? And she wipes his feet with her hair. And then the house is filled with the scent of it. A pound Everybody in that house and then everybody on that block and everybody who walked by knew that royalty was here. Because I know how expensive that stuff is. I have not smelled it often. And every time we do smell it, something important is happening. And it filled the entire house. But a house also is, is symbolic for a family, a nation. And we can look back to Matthew and Mark, verse 13 in Matthew, and verse 9 in Mark. Look at Matthew 26, 13. It says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. The same way the smell went throughout that house, the story of what this woman did would go, out the, go throughout the entire world. This sweet-smelling fragrance to all those who were present, her act was sweet-smelling to God. And it was such a beautiful story of recognizing the glory of Christ that it would spread throughout the entire world. And deeds of devotion to the Lord by his servants are like sweet-smelling perfume that fill the room and that fill the nations. So this is a remarkable act. And this momentary shame that she took on took all of the glory away from her and put it where it belonged, on Christ. I will become lesser so that he will become greater. I will humiliate myself for the sake of my Lord. And some of us are going to be like Martha, who have this small aroma, who kind of serve in the background. Some of us are going to be like Mary, who just let it freely at the feet of our Savior. But if it is done unto Christ, they are both pleasing to God. And then John, as he does so often, paints this picture of something good and pure and noble. And we only know what evil is or what good is when it is contrasted against its opposite. 
So now she can, he, John contrasts it with Judas. Mary is a, contrast, is, a, is a contrast to the Jews. They wanted to kill him. She anoints him. She does not care the cost. She puts her most expensive thing at his feet. She is generous and she is extravagant toward Christ. But Judas Iscariot, verse 24, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him. John just threw that little jab in there. There's a transition here um, by way of, of theme, this, this compare and contrast. Judas is marked by greed. He's marked by self-indulgence and ultimately shows that he only values himself. He does not care about anyone else, even though his words, we're going to see in just a moment, on the surface, seems like he's being thoughtful. So look at what he says. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Well, on the surface, it sounds like a good idea, right? There's a lot of money here. Of course, it could be given to the poor. But this comes from an obsession with money. You notice what he does? He puts a number value on it. Greed is always calculating. Greed is always saying, this is worth this much. I could use this much over here. And I'll be honest, as I'm searching myself this week, I probably identify more than Judas than I do with Mary. It's a lot easier for me to put a dollar amount on, on something and say, well, this is worth this much and this is worth this much. And Judas is, is, is scheming. He's, he's a materialist. But John also kind of gives us the instigator of the story. Because in Matthew and Mark, it's the disciples who say this. And they say kind of general comments. But we know now who's instigating it. It's Judas who speaks up first and the rest of the disciples are like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Judas has a point. You could sell this for 300 denarii. Well, what is a denarii and why should I care? So let me help you understand how expensive this was. A denarii, one denarii was the working wage for a day for a laborer. So 300 denarii are a year's wages for a laborer. A year's wages. Now let's kind of put that in comparison. This is an agrarian society, so day laborers are not making a whole lot. Uh, like I, I looked it up. And so some of the nations that rely completely on agriculture, the average wage, a yearly wage, is probably around $1,000 a year. For someone who works in the fields and works compared to our minimum wage, which is way surpasses what anyone else around the world makes. So either way, this is thousands of dollars within fair comparison that she just broke in, at his feet. She took a really nice used car and said, I'm going to dedicate this to my Lord. And Judas is like, are you kidding me? You know how much this costs? How much can we do for the poor? It sounds so noble. And the poor are an easy target. Because who's going who's to say, no, you, you can't do something for the poor with it. But John, you know, before we, we uh, compare ourselves or get too much into Judas' situation, John tells us that he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself to what was put in it. John lets us know, don't be surprised about Judas' character. He was a thief from the beginning. He's always been a thief. He would take what was in the money bag for himself. And for someone who doesn't trust the Lord, an act of worship, an act of devotion, an act of adoration seems foolish. Well, this is stupid. Why would this woman do this? 
It's just a guy. Don't you know that there's money involved? And I love the thing that we may miss, the irony of this whole thing. Jesus knows all of their hearts. And who does he entrust the money back to? The thief. This is how much Jesus cares about money. He gives it to the thief, knowing that the guy's pulling money out of it all along. Jesus is not worried because the Father will provide. And what gall. This is the Lord of glory. Take on flesh who is, whose entire ministry is in that knapsack. He, he takes no belongings with him. Whatever money they have for him and the disciples is in there. And Judas takes it for himself. That's why it should break your heart and it should anger you when people steal from the work of the Lord who use their, their, their own purposes to funnel money for themselves, who have greedy motivations with the things of God. Their place is with Judas. And how easy is it to be dishonest? How easy to say the money is right here. I can just take a couple more for myself. No one will know. I, I, I have better plans for it than everyone else. How easy it is to be dishonest in business and, and in dealings. It's taking something small that, that, that doesn't belong to you. The incorrect change that you really owed. The free movies or the free music online. Sorry, do not plug your ears for that one. That's, that's true. And I can say this because I was a thief. I'm not proud of it, but before Christ, I didn't care about anyone. Shri will tell you, I, I would steal things just because I could. But it starts with candy as a kid. And it quickly escalates to robbery. And the greater the payout, the greater the risk. And it is easy. It just snowballs. Because, hey, I'm taking care of me. And greed is only a few natural steps away from conspiracy to commit murder. And I don't think it's by accident that if you look back in Matthew and Mark, in both Matthew and Mark, what precedes this account is the plot to put Jesus to death. And what comes directly after is Judas going to sell him out. This was probably the straw that broke his little greedy heart. Look at these fools. They're just throwing money away. If I'm not going to profit off of this woman's perfume, I'm going to make my own profit. So the man who put a price on this oil is about to go sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Judas is only concerned with his own glory. Judas is only concerned with his own payout, what lines his own pockets. What is Jesus concerned with? And I love how he comes to her defense. Leave her alone. Says in the other Gospels, why do you bother this woman? So that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Jesus is concerned with his glory. This is for him. He is the focus of all of this. And I'll tell you, working through this in John, this is a really tough thing uh, to, to translate here. She may keep it for the day of my burial. So there's a lot of debate about this. But uh, what's helpful is that in Matthew and Mark, it gives us a better picture. Look at Matthew Again, 26, verse 12. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. This is intentional. This is looking forward to his burial. 
She has done it in preparation. And then in uh, Mark verse 8. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. This is unheard of. Yes, you would anoint a dead body before placing it in, but no one anoints someone who, while they're alive unless they're paying attention. Because we remember, what is Mary's posture before this? Mary's listening. Mary's always at the feet of the Lord. She has done this in anticipation. There's a Greek commentator, uh, A.T. Robertson, who says she brings the flowers before the funeral. She's doing this in preparation. And whether she realized it for, for, or, or not, this is prophetic. Just like, just like Caiaphas, who said, what must happen to Jesus? She is preparing him for his burial. She is anointing him because she knows that it is coming. And he recognizes that. And he gives her the glory and praise for it. Same commentator goes on. I love what he says about this. He says, we really keep whatever we give to Christ. We really keep whatever we give to Christ. She gave her most expensive possession, more or less. We don't know exactly what she owned, but she gave what was most valuable that would have made everyone be astounded. She gives it to Christ. And in return, she receives the glory of anointing the Savior, of going down in history and the story being told in heavenly reward that far exceeds the most expensive perfume you could imagine. Everything that Mary had looked forward to the cross. And in the same regard, everything we have should look back at the cross. She laid it all on the line, knowing that something was coming. She trusted the words of Christ. He will die and he will raise again. We know him to have died, but in the grave and rose again. How much more ought we look to look back at the cross? We have to ask ourselves, is what he's given us more valuable than what he's done for us? If we fail to look back at the cross and be reminded of our own sin and our Savior who died for us, is what he's given us more valuable than what he's done for us? You know, and this is a real question. Because, you know, are we that unattached to our stuff that we can just give it up at any time? Or are we like Judas? We try to calculate how much everything is worth and compare it to the worth of Christ. Let's make sure we can examine ourselves before we start to condemn Judas. I know I had to this week. So, so what does that mean for us practically? Do we recognize that everything is his? Every good gift we have comes from the Lord of glory. Or do we say, I worked for it, it's mine, he has no claim on it, I will do what I wish, I know better. Or do we see him as the Lord of all, that everything can be taken in a minute, or just given in an instant? So here in the same scene, we have Mary and Judas, both preparing for and contributing to his death in two very different ways. One looks foolish on the surface and one looks thoughtful. But as you dig underneath in, in the motives, one is out of love for the Savior and his glory. And one is out of selfishness for his own glory. So then Jesus goes on in verse 8 and says this, this statement that causes people a lot of issues. 
For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. And so we get the same statement, in a sense, in Matthew and Mark. Mark gives us a little bit more information. If you look at uh, verse 7 of chapter 14 in Mark, he says this. He says, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. Jesus is not saying you should not do good to the poor. I mean, this is an Old Testament principle. But he is showing what comes first. Look to me first. You do not always have me. I am your focus. Good to the poor you can always do. And so this is consistent with Deuteronomy 15. This will be kind of a preview of our Bible study. If you want to turn to Deuteronomy 15, I want to work through this section. And there's a couple things we can pull out of, of, of here. So how do we interpret what Jesus is saying here? The poor you will always have with me. With you. Excuse me. Deuteronomy chapter 15, starting in verse 7. Now, the first thing we do in any of our Bible studies is we look at the repeated words. Look at what's repeated here. If anyone, excuse me, if among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficiently for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. Getting to the motivations again. And you say the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother. You give him nothing and he cry out to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all of your work and all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and the poor in your land. A couple things we want to look at here. What do we see repeated over and over and over again? Brother. We also see land, those among you. Uh, Here's something that a lot of people read into into Scripture. There is nowhere in, in Scripture where we ever get an understanding that poverty will end. Anywhere. The poor you always have with you. Because it's, it's, it's a part of the curse. It's a part of sin. It is a sinful condition that some will, will, will suffer. Some will go through perpetual um, poverty. But also there's something that we don't understand. Uh, there were no, in their day, there were no government programs. There, there, there were no things to help the poor. There was perpetual poverty. If you were in poor, there was no coming up out of, out of your, your status. You could go into poverty if you got yourself into debt, but you could rarely get yourself out of poverty. So this is kind of a perpetual nature. It will always happen. But what's most important here is this is a concern for Israel. God did not say, go take care of the the, the poor Hittites or the poor Egyptians or the poor Phoenicians. This is among your brothers, the people in your land, those who are, those who the Lord has, has given you. And so as we talked about in Romans, Israel was God's people. Now, by faith, we become spiritual Israel. So this is a commandment to the church. And, and yes, we should do good to all, of course. But there is a specific concern within Israel that makes sure that no one in Israel starved. And there is a command within the church to make sure that the, the, the body is taken care of. And that as brothers in Christ, we make sure, as we see in Acts 2, that none of them had any want or, or any need 
because we take care of the household of faith. But also recognizing this tension that the poor will always be with you. The first thing is Christ. And devotion for Christ comes first. And care for Christ, excuse me, care for the poor can only come out of of a true understanding of who Christ is. Because it is only in Christ where you see the imago Dei, the image of God, the value that people have. It is only through Christ and see what he's done for us, the mercy and the grace that we've received, can we joyfully and freely give of what he's given us. And so you must put his glory first. Some people try to make it the reverse. I need to do all these good things and I'll get to Jesus later. I need to pat myself on the back and feel good about myself first and, and, and validate myself. But Jesus says, I am here now. Pay attention to me. When he says you, this is plural. So when, it, it, when he says, leave her alone, it's singular. He's speaking to Judas. He says, you will always have the poor with you. It's plural. Speaking to all the disciples, everyone there. It's, it's a part of the curse. It will be here until Jesus returns. But one beautiful thing that is said in our passage in John. But you do not always have me. Our Savior We're not on that side of the cross. We're on this side of the cross. Our Savior is risen again. I will never leave you. I will never thank you, never forsake you. Thank God we always have him. They had a unique moment in history where stay at his feet, learn as much as you can, be with me. But as he is risen and as he brings new life to his people, we have him forever. And this is a beautiful contrast. But it is only out of devotion to Christ and his glory that you can be a blessing to those in need. Otherwise, you're just seeking your own glory. And so those around you will recognize you. So now we get to the end of this, this kind of uh, narrational update. So when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. This is the, the double threat to the Jews. Because Jesus is threat enough. Now there's this guy who's raised from the dead that Jesus raised. So ultimately it's about Christ. They hate Lazarus. Do you see that? Who he rose from the dead. They hate Lazarus because of Christ. <laughs> this double threat leads to verse 10. These people were coming on account of Jesus but also in Lazarus who he raised. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Didn't they just forget that they met at Caiaphas' house about a month ago and said, and Caiaphas forgets his own words because Caiaphas is a chief priest. He says, it's better that one man die than that the entire nation perish. But now we've got another threat because if you commit to one murder, it's real easy to go to the next one. It can snowball. You you commit to stealing candy, it's not a far jump to breaking into houses. Because if Jesus had to be put to death, if we're threatened by him, anyone who stands with him or who is a witness to him becomes a threat as well, and they must be put to death. Murderous desires do not stop at one. And evil motives quickly multiply. The real travesty here is these are the chief priests. These are the men who are supposed to offer sacrifices for sin, for murder, 
on behalf of the people before God. And they are committing murderous treason against God and the one that God rose from the grave. This is the ultimate slap in the face of these chief priests. Their wicked intentions. Why? Why are they so angry? Why do they want to kill Lazarus? Verse 11. Because on account of him, the glory of Christ shown through Lazarus rising, many of the Jews were going away and believing. They were going away and believing, meaning they were not standing under the empty teaching of these dead men who do not know the Lord even though they wear the robes and stand in the office. But they're going away and believing in Jesus. He raises people from the dead. You just spout to me about how good you are and how wicked we are. Again, this is still, the chief priests were all Sadducees. So there's also another layer to this if you don't know the culture, and we've talked about this several times throughout John, but the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. So not only does Jesus threaten their political power, which we talked about last week, not only does he threaten their religious power, but he threatens their theology. Because they say there is no resurrection, but Lazarus is living proof. So now we need to put this guy to death so that we can stand on our unbiblical stance. We, we looked at this. We walked through all the references to the resurrection in the Old Testament. This is what people are still doing today. I have this unbiblical belief that I'm going to stand on and I'm going to suppress anyone else who speaks out against me. The truth is not afraid of challenge. But when your faith is based on a lie, when you suppress the power of God and say, God cannot do this, God does something against his word, you must put anyone who disagrees with you to death. This is exactly what they're doing. And this is exactly what happens around the world. We talk about this with our brothers and sisters in China. It happens in Arab countries. It happens in Asian countries. That they are so scared of those who believe in Jesus because it threatens everything they stand for. Because if you know you have freedom in Christ, no one can enslave you. But when you believe in Jesus, now someone else doesn't get to be king because he's king. And so here we have these men holding on to their own power, their own glory so tightly that they will kill anyone who gets in their way. This is the result of seeking your own glory. It starts with taking money out of a purse. Then it starts with committing murder. And then it ends up in murder. We see this again and again and again in Scripture. Jesus tells us if you hate someone in your heart, you might as well have just pulled the trigger because you've already done it. And so we see what is at stake here. Do we seek our glory? Or do we seek the glory of the king? Do we seek what makes for our benefit or gives Christ glory? Do we give up in this life what we cannot hold on to to take hold of what he promises us in the next that we will never lose? So just quickly, by words of Conclusion, I want to ask a question and then I want to give an encouragement. Are we generous and extravagant when we give to the Lord and care for those who are his? Or are we selfish, giving everything a price tag like Judas? So that's my question, but here's my encouragement. 
I am so encouraged by the generosity I see in this congregation. It brings joy to my heart to see the way that you care for one another. I could stand up here all day and talk about how people serve one another and and care for one another and how selfless they are and how we're able to meet needs. And um, it is such a blessing to be a part of a body who, of course, we all struggle. And of course, we all want to hold on to our material things. But by and large, you are a generous people, a joyful people, a giving people. And I'm honored to serve alongside you. And just by way of closing and further commandment, this is Bethany, a very small town. These are small town nobodies, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And they were all used to bring glory to Christ. We're a bunch of small town nobodies who God will use to bring glory to Christ. Because look at the parallels here. If you know Jesus, he has brought you from the grave like Lazarus and seated you at his table. If you know Jesus, he is worthy of being served like Martha. If you know Jesus, he is worthy than your most, more valuable than your most expensive possession like Mary. And he is coming again. And the glory we give to him in this life, he will return to us a hundredfold in the next. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, you are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Like the angels around your throne, we could sing holy, holy, holy for eternity and still never touch your holiness. Lord, let us do everything for your glory, to magnify your name, that you become greater and we become lesser. Lord, remove from us any connection to our stuff and to material things. Lord, let us love you with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength and recognize that everything we have is from you and it is yours. And we can rejoice because we are are yours. You will never leave us, never forsake us. You are with us always. Lord, thank you for seeing your work, being able to see your work in every member of this body, seeing the ministry of reconciliation, bringing dead people to life, healing those who are are wounded, the leper and the dead man alike. You're the God of all glory, worthy of all praise. You are all powerful and worthy of everything that we have. Let us rejoice that we are yours and we get to be called by your name. And it is in that name that we pray. Amen.